Dark Friday. It's not called Morning Friday. It's, it's really the moment of victory for Jesus. It was the entire purpose of his life was that going to the cross was not what he thought it was defeat, but it was the culmination, the victory, the plan all coming together that, that his death on the cross would bring us forgiveness and restoration to our relationship with God. And then came Easter weekend, of course, where we celebrate the risen Jesus, that the cave, the tomb was empty, that the proof was Easter, the proof that Jesus was who he said he was, that when he made wild claims to people saying, I am the son of God, I am the Messiah, I can be put to death, but I will come back from the grave in three days, that empty tomb was the proof that Jesus truly was who he said he was. Well, the question is then, well, what happens next? Where does the story go from there? And last week, Doug started our series on changes. Well, what happened next was Jesus was seen by many people. He came back to life, and he was seen first by the Marys. And then he was seen by Peter and John. And then he was seen by all the disciples. And last, by Thomas, who said, hey, I'm not believing this until I can put my finger in the holes in his hand, my hand in his side, and... And, and Jesus says, go for it. I'm right here. And then he's seen by hundreds of others during the next 40 days. And during that time, Jesus taught the disciples and continued his teaching ministry. And I think what he was teaching, we don't know what exactly it was, but hey, where do we go from here? What is next? What are the things that we're a little foggy on and, and, and we didn't quite understand? But, but he spent the next 40 days with the disciples teaching them and at the very end of that, he ascended back into heaven. And his last teaching right before he went into heaven was, hey, don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. I'm about to leave, but don't do anything until you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you do, you will know exactly what happens next. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, whatever you feel led to do, whatever you feel moved to do, go for it. So 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter and all the disciples. They're outside the synagogue, and it says that the, the Holy Spirit descended like tongues of fire upon them. And as Peter was teaching, the entire community that was listening to him heard it in their own language. And we don't know what the mystery of that is, whether or not you know, it was actually coming out of their mouths in all these different languages. We don't know if it was on the receiving end that they were speaking only in, in Hebrew or in Greek, but man, it was in the language of the person that was listening. We're not sure. But that's the mystery of the Holy Spirit. But that's what Pentecost was all about, the beginning of the Holy Spirit being a part of all of our lives who say we are followers of Jesus. And Peter preaches, and he preaches three things in his first message. Like all good pre preachers, we have basically three things, okay? His first thing was repent. Hey, you need to turn away from what you're doing and recognize it's just not working. And then turn to God. Don't turn to something else, but turn to God and be baptized. And when he was done with that message, we had instant church. We had the first mega church that ever was recorded. They had 3,000 people there that day. 3,000 people that repented, turned to God, and were baptized. Now, the question we want to wrestle with today is, how did this happen? 
how did this happen with the disciples? Because when I think of the disciples, I think of very fearful followers. You look at their history to date, and the mark of the disciples was they were big chickens. They were always afraid, and they were always unsure, and they never really got it. Let me give you one passage from Mark 4 that points this out. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowd behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up, high waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat and his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Then the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other, even the wind and the waves obey him. They went from being afraid to terrified. I mean, these guys didn't go, all right, we were afraid. Now we've got it together. Now they were even more scared. They just turned their fear to somewhere else. Who is this guy? That event occurs over and over and over in the lives of the disciples. Fast forward to the garden. Jesus said, hey, I'm going to be taken. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be whipped. They go out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray together. And guess what? The Jewish leaders show up. The guards show up. They take Jesus prisoner. And at the end of this event, it says, all the disciples run away. Peter, the guy that during the dinner says, no, 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 man. If that happens, we're in, we're in. I will never abandon you. Yet in the next 24 hours, as Jesus goes through his trial, Peter denies him three times. I don't know that man. I've never been with that man. At final end, he swears, I don't know Jesus. And after his death, it doesn't get any better. We found that out that after Jesus dies, we find out that the disciples are all in hiding. And John, it says, Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. These guys are filled with fear. Their plans, their dreams, their hopes have crashed and burned with Jesus. Now just hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. But we want to kind of delve into this whole issue of fear. What creates fear and what, what causes fear in our lives? And part of it is just the way God created us. It's just the way he made us. It's part of our brain. And, and last night I butchered this word, so doctors and nurses, give me a break, okay? But uh, there's a little part of our brain called the amygdala. Did I get that right? Oh, good. Last night it was bad. All right. So this, this little part of our brain is kind of the storage center for us about fear. And when events happen that are painful or when events happen that are harmful, this little part of our brain holds on to that. And then when that situation occurs again, we have three basic responses to it, either flight or fight 
or freeze. And that little part of our brain tells us what to do next. Because on past experiences, past understanding, it recognizes we should be afraid. So let me give you some examples. If you've ever been bitten by a dog, it will affect your encounters with dogs in the future. You know, you see a dog in the future and it looks like this, you are not going to go pet it. You know better. You know what? That's just a bad idea. Because this little part of your brain kicks in and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Do not approach that. Flee. Freeze. There's some other parts to our fear, though. Some of our fears are driven by irrational fears. How many of you guys have an irrational fear? You know it's irrational. Yeah, I've got one. I have an irrational fear, but it's kind of cool because it comes from a guy that's really brave. Um, but uh, you know what? I'm just like Indiana Jones. You know, he was terrified of snakes. I have an incredible fear of snakes. Now, here's why it's irrational. I've never been bitten by a snake. I've never touched a snake. I've never had one as a pet. I've never been around them for the most part of my life. However, I am terrified of snakes. My wife thinks it's hilarious. You know, if, if there's one on a television set that we're watching a show and a snake shows up, man, I am like starting to squirm and that. And, and if it like does that whole strike thing, I am like over the top of the couch gone. All right? It's just, it's totally, it's not that funny. It's not that funny. Okay? But it's totally irrational. My high school students saw it in action last summer for me. During our trip to Canada, we were up on this beautiful peak, and it was sunny, and it was nice and warm. We stopped there for lunch, and, and I'm sitting on this nice big boulder, and as I'm sitting there, one of our students comes up next to me and goes, Hey, Doug, look over to your left. There was this massive garter snake, <laughs> and I was gone. I was off the rock and on the other side of the area. It was never going to hurt me. It was never going to harm me. I've never even had an experience with a snake. But man, it was totally irrational, my responses. The only thing I could think of was either run away or kill it. And our students wouldn't let me kill it. So that left me with run away. All right? We have those responses totally irrational. We also have rational fears. Hey, and those make total sense. There is a clear and present danger. And we go, wow, this is a bad situation. It's rational. It makes total sense in our lives. And then there's the last one that I mentioned already, which was experiential. That because of a past experience we've had in our lives, we, we don't want to have that ever happen again. And it, it kind of creates our future. When I was in third grade, we, I went to camp in Illinois. Now, camp in Illinois is so different than camp in Minnesota. I mean, in Minnesota, we have 10,000 lakes, you know, so every camp is on a lake. In Illinois, there's just one. It's called Lake Michigan, you know, and, and there isn't a whole lot of camps on Lake Michigan because basically Chicago takes it all up. So when you went to camp in Illinois, if you wanted to have a water experience, you ended up going to the pool that was built at the camp. So when I was in third grade, we went to this camp and it had this really great pool and it had a water slide there. And, and when we got there during our free time, we could go swimming. So I saw this pool for the first time. I saw that water slide. I went, man, I am so on this thing, and it's going to be great. 
somewhere along the way. I missed the instructional time that said, hey, these pools have a deep end and a shallow end. I missed that somewhere along the way. So I went over there to the water slide and I got on the water slide and, and had no fear and went down the water slide. And when I hit the bottom, I did not touch the bottom. Full out panic. The next thing I remember was a very nice lifeguard girl dragging me out of the pool and going, you really should stay in the shallow end. <laughs> now, you know what? Since then, I've learned how to swim. But I will tell you, I am an incredibly insecure person about water. I've taught students how to swim. I can swim. But you know what? Water for me just puts me on edge. Even if I have a life jacket on, and I love water, but I am still, that experience is always in the background. Think about the disciples' fears. Their fears were not irrational. They were based in rational and experiential moments. The storm on the Sea of Galilee, they were fishermen. They understood storms on the Sea of Galilee. And if you do any research about it, storms can come up in a hurry there. And many of the fishermen of that era had drowned and, and lost their lives due to the storms that would come up on the Sea of Galilee. So when a storm comes up, man, it was time to get to shore. And the disciples knew it. They got it. So their fear was based in experience. Think of the cross. Their fear was based in a rational understanding. Following Jesus could be, present a clear and present danger. He is dying on the cross. And those people might be coming for us. See, the disciples' fear was basically one. We're going to die. Over and over, that was their fear. We're going to die. Now, behind that, were other emotions and other questions and other fears. It was the fear of the unknown for them. Hey, the guy we followed for three years, the guy who said, I am going to be the king of Israel, I've got a great plan for us, just died. What happens now? Where do we go from here? He didn't explain this part. It was totally out of their control. They had no control of the events happening around them. Some of us are like that. We like control. You know, I have some friends that, man, they need to know exactly when we're doing it, how we're doing it, why we're doing it. And if they don't have that control, it just creates panic inside of them and fear inside of them. And the disciples were unconfident. Man, if Jesus is dead, where does that leave us? We, we can't keep doing what we were doing. We might as well go back to fishing which is what some of them did. So now fast forward from that. I mean, that's where they've been. That's where the cross leaves them. Think about Acts chapter 2 last week when Peter preaches that very first, first message about repent, turn to God, be baptized. Then in chapter 3, we find out that Peter and John go back to the temple again. And as they're walking into the temple they have an encounter with a man who was crippled. And the crippled man says, hey, show some mercy on me. Do you have any money to, to take care of me that I can get some food of that because I don't have the opportunity to work? 
Peter and John don't have any money. They said, well, we don't have any cash to give you, but we'll give you what we've received. And because we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you can walk. And this guy all of a sudden just pops up off the ground, starts walking around, and the people are going, whoa, that is crazy. What is going on here? And Peter launches into his very next sermon about, hey, I can do this because I know a guy. I know a guy, and his name is Jesus. And that guy is the Son of God. Which leads us to chapter 4. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These are the very same people that they ran away from in the Garden of Gethsemane. The very same people that put Jesus on trial and had him crucified. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the, the people that through Jesus, there's a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them. What was one of their fears? They're going to take us away and we're going to die. They arrested them and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of the men who believed now totaled about 5,000. Including women, they probably think it's about 7,000 people were part of the church by now. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and some relatives of the high priest. This is the exact group that had the mock trial of Jesus, the exact group that had Jesus crucified. This is the group that they should be terrified of. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and hang on to that, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. The man you crucified but God raised from the dead. Incredible boldness, isn't it? From guys who are hiding behind locked doors, this is his rebuttal. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. He is picking on him now. You are the religious leaders. You rejected him, and he is the greatest thing happening. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way, he's telling them. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. You have to ask the question, what happened? What happened? So the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were asking this same question. What happened? We know these guys. These guys are not very courageous. They fled, man. We thought we had this thing beat. Jesus was dead. It was done. 
We did our victory dance, and now these guys are back again. What happened? Here's their conclusion. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Why? For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scripture. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. The defining characteristics of these guys. Ordinary. What they're really saying is they're nobodies. These guys, they're fishermen. They're tax collectors. Some of them are like radicals. They, they, aren't, they aren't trained. They aren't, they aren't important. But they had been with Jesus. That was their defining character. They had been with Jesus. Well, what did being with Jesus do in their lives? Well, remember, Jesus taught them. He came back from the grave. He says, I am who I said I was. All the things prior to the crucifixion that he had taught them, after Easter, after him coming back from the dead, now he, they are, they're all in. They're all in. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. All of the teachings that he gave to them, now they were applying to their lives, and now they were trying to share that with the Jewish community. They had this new boldness because they'd also watched him ascend into heaven. I mean, no one's pulled that off before. They watched this guy leave them and say, hey, I'm going to be back, go back with my father in heaven, and I will be preparing a place for you but I'm leaving you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he says, God is going to be with you. God will always be with you. I will always be with you. So these guys who had all kinds of fear now had reasons for trust. I mean, the future was known. They knew what their future was. They knew that the person they had put their faith in was worthy. Control now didn't matter to them. God was in control. Whatever happened, it wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the Sadducees. Whatever happened in their lives, God was ultimately in control of their futures. And they had a confidence. They had a boldness to speak truth, to challenge the Jewish leaders. But they began with a fear. We're going to die. They began with a fear. And they had to move to a place of trust. They had to get from the fear to the trust. And God enabled that. God created that. The Holy Spirit that indwells us, guides us, gives us that courage that we're not alone. I'd like you to hear the story of, of Karen and Greg Hinnermeister. That very early on in their marriage, when they were young and just starting their family, they had this challenge moment that they had to decide if they were going to live in fear or if they were going to live in trust with the God that they knew. Excited to add to our family and at the 20-week ultrasound, we learned that it was actually two babies. So we 
move forward with that in mind and adding four feet to our family. Uh, it wasn't until after they were delivered, about 24 hours in, Brenna started having some issues with her blood pressure and her respiratory rate. There was something about she wasn't thriving something, so she was in the, in the warming oven. Isolette. <laughs> then at 24 hours, they picked up um, a heart murmur, and she was diagnosed with a couple of holes in her ventricular wall and her atrial wall and then um, a valve that wasn't uh, closed off, that should have closed off. Um, and they said, well, she's, she's doing okay right now. We'll put her on some meds um, and we'll look to maybe about nine months um, to do open heart surgery to correct those. Um, and then at eight weeks, we were in for a regular checkup with her cardiologist and he said, well, she's not thriving. So we need to do the surgery now. And so we had about nine days to prepare for our seven pound, uh, 10 week old baby to have open heart surgery. I do recall the, the, when she was in the intensive care with uh, 100,000 cables hooked up to her, there was that nurse that he just stood there. And obviously that made me think there was, there was a very urgent period where nothing could go wrong and if it did, every second counted. Um, but it was really the first moment um, ever that I realized how a trial or a test or a struggle could cause somebody to walk away. Could say, okay God, this is a deal breaker. We're done. So it, it allowed me to examine my own resolve and my own faith um, but it, it, it was my faith that carried me through any fear that I might have had. So yeah, at that point we just slipped, I think, a little bit into autopilot to just do what we were told. Come here, do this, have this test, have these blood tests, and show up at 6 a.m. for surgery on March 29th, 2001. I'm a worrier, my mom was a worrier, um, so I was worried. And I remember distinctly standing in our little living room with my parents about probably about midnight um, in a circle praying and my mom um, prayed and we all had to be up and out of the house by about 4 a.m. I think to be at the hospital and well um, I know the morning of I was overwhelmed at the number of people that took days off of work to come and just sit in a hospital waiting room with us um, for the day, that was um, overwhelming to me. And even now I think about that sacrifice that people made just to come and sit with us and support us. So there was this calm of sorts just because we knew there was a direction. This period of our life um, didn't sway my faith. In fact, I feel like it was my faith that carried me through, carried us through. I've never known my life without Jesus, without my faith. We were just doing what we felt we needed to do and the, trusting God in the story that he was, was laying forth for us. health issues, whether it's our kids or our parents or ourselves, that can create that fear, is there? 
Karen and Greg said, well, we didn't know anything other than Jesus, so we just trusted. Almost saying, we didn't know any better, but we just, we, we were in. And we were going to trust God with whatever happened next. You know, there's some irony in the story of the disciples. I mean, there really is irony in it. Remember what they were afraid of? We're going to die. Guess what? They did. All of the disciples except for Judas died for their faith. Now, John, the ba- John, John ends up on the Isle of Patmos, um, exiled. But trust me, that wasn't like, hey, and you win. You know, he's exiled there for the rest of his natural days until he dies. But they all gave up their lives for their faith. They all gave up their lives following Jesus. That fear, we're going to die, became a confidence that, hey, no matter what happens, we're, we're going to be okay, even if we die. Jesus' statement, God will be with you. It was made to the disciples. But if you go back to the Old Testament, you will see that over and over and over, throughout the story from Genesis to Revelation, God just keeps saying it again and again and again. I will be with you, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Moses, whether it's Joshua, whether it's David, whether it's the disciples or you and I. He says, I will be with you. Jesus says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You can make the move from fear to trust because I am with you. But you have to move. You have to do something. You can't just sit there. You know, the disciples didn't stay behind the locked doors forever. They came out. They came out when they went, hey, we have no one else to turn to. We are going to turn to God. We're going to trust in whatever happens next to him. So the question that really we have to think about is what fears prevent us from taking the next step with Jesus? What fears prevent us from leaning into God? You know, for some of us, those fears are, you know, they're based out of those core feelings, the unknown, the uncontrolled, um, that we're unconfident. You know. I've heard some people say, well, the reason I'm not going to follow Jesus is because He's going to wreck my life. And I like my life. Hey, if I follow Jesus, he's going to take away all the fun in my life. And I've met those followers of Jesus, and they're not very fun. There's people that go, I don't have control if I start to follow Jesus. I don't know where that's going to lead me. A week ago, um, there was a lunch here for the pastors in the area, and, and Doug and I were at it. And, and there was this wonderful young lady named Casey who came to hang out with us. And, and our hope is she's going to see you probably and talk to you in June um, and tell you her story and what God's doing in her life a little bit more. But, but she came and saw us, and Casey's 20 years old. She lives here in Zumbro Falls. She is planning on going to the Arabian Peninsula this fall. God has put on her heart a burden to reach Muslim women. She has no education. She has no experience. She has no 
no you know confidence that hey everything's going to be worked out you know i started thinking about her and i started thinking about my daughter my daughter's 22 and i'm going 20 there is no way you should be doing this i could think of all the reasons if i was her dad why she shouldn't do this you realize they really don't like women they really don't like white women they really don't like red-haired white women and they really don't like american women I could think of all the reasons why she shouldn't go. But she's gone to a place of trust. Is the fear still there? Sure there is. You know, she said, yeah, I got some stuff that I'm pretty nervous about, but I'm just trusting God. I'm leaning in to this next movement, moment with God. I believe he's guiding me, directing me, and I just have to go. I would like that to be our stories. Not that you're going to the Arabian Peninsula, but that God, the Holy Spirit, is put on your head, your heart. I've got a step for you to take. I want you to lean in and trust me. I want you to boldly speak or act and and last week doug said it might be one of these three it might be to repent to recognize that my life is messed up the next step might be i just need to turn to god i have tried everything except god but i need to turn to god and for some of us in this room it may be taking that step of baptism you may be going oh that baptism word But for some of us, that is the next step. It might be one of these, to step out, step up, or step into. I don't know what it is. That's where you get to wrestle with God. This this spring, I've been wrestling with this very topic with my daughter. She graduates this year, and uh, she thinks that God is calling her to a place a thousand miles away from us. And I have all kinds of good reasons why it's a bad idea. In my head and in my heart, I'm just going, this is such a bad idea. But I have to let go and trust her that it's going to be okay. And I have to let go and go, God, you're, you still got this, even if I'm not going to be there. You got this. I think all of us are just like that. And today I want to encourage us to think about what that fear is. See, I want us to be like the disciples that moved from fearful to fearless. I would like us to be a group of followers of Jesus that are fearless. That people would look at us and they would be able to say the same things they said about the disciples. They were men who had been with Jesus. That we, men and women, who have been with Jesus, who have followed Jesus, who have learned the lessons of Jesus, that the defining part of our lives is we've been spending time with God. So as you leave, I'm going to just challenge you one last time. What is the fear that's holding you back? And what is the step of faith God wants you to be taking next? Let's pray. God, I think our desire for many of us here is that we would have the boldness of the disciples. 
that you would move us to that place. That we would step out, step up, step into the next chapter that you're writing in our lives. God, our prayer is this week we would live fearlessly with our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful